I do this job because when people come in and they leave our venue and, and the guests come up to me and say, you know what, that's one of the, the best meals or one of the best experiences I had. Like, that's why I love this job. Like, it's called hospitality for a reason. Giving good food, um, giving good service at an affordable price. Like, f- for me, that's why I do this. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Over the last few years, we've seen some people leave the hospitality sector after the uncertainty of COVID. And on the odd occasion, we've seen some move into the industry. Then there are a random few that have come back to the fold after leaving during this time. What is the allure of a career in hospitality that keeps drawing people back? Nathan Sassy is the co-owner of soon-to-be-opened Bar Copan in Surrey Hills, Sydney. Nathan, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on the show. You've had a pretty wild ride the last couple of years and sort of hung up the apron, but you're back. For sure. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a roller coaster. One of those ones where you're not quite sure if you're going to vomit at the end of it or not, but um, <laughs> I made it through the other side. Take us through the steps. I mean, you um, you left the industry and moved away from it, but what, what was the feeling of that time when you did move away from hospitality? Um, I, I think, as you probably know as well, like when you have a family, um, it just makes things so much harder to kind of run a business and, and look after staff and do all the other things that kind of, you know, come with, with being a business owner. And I think when, when COVID happened, it really put a lot of things into perspective for me. It was probably the most amount of time I'd ever had off in my career. And since my kids were born, I was just like, go, go, go. My wife and I had moved around to like different states, to different countries. We've just done so much. And it was the first time where I realized, you know what, I really need to give other people in my life like more time. So, um, because of that experience, I was like, is this really a career I still want to do? Because it'd been over two decades that I've been in hospitality for, and I, I love it, but it's just so taxing. And when COVID happened, it just made things even harder, as, as we all know. And I just kind of got to the point where it's like, okay, I'm probably at the middle point of my life and my career. I mean, if, if there's ever going to be a time where I can say, you know what, now is the time to take a different career path, this is the time. Was it, was it a, an easy decision or a nerve-wracking decision? Like, take us to, to that time. Was it, was it tough for you to do it? Yeah, for sure. Um, Uh, And we can get into obviously kind of what I did um, after I decided to leave. Um, For sure, you know, like I I thought I would always be one of those people like the Matt Morans, the Peter Gilmores, the Neil Perrys of the industry that would, you know, be into retirement age and still be working in the kitchen. I just, (laughs) I just, I just... You know, like when you've started in a job for such a young age and you're so passionate about it, like there's no thoughts in the back of your head where you'd be like, I want to do something else because I just love cooking. I love the experience of hospitality. There was nothing that I ever did in my life where I'd be like, I'm really good at this or I'm really passionate about that and that's the career path I'm going to follow. 
Well, t- tell us um, what you moved into for your uh, sojourn. Yeah, so um, whether it's cliche because of what happened during COVID, I-, I think obviously a lot of people were sitting at home and they were bored. And this wasn't the reason why I decided to get into this, but I got into actually trading fi- financial markets. So for the last two years, I've been a <laughs> I've been a multi multi asset trader. And back in the day, I, I-, I loved to slap on the pokies. So I guess um, I'm not I'm not trying to say that trading is like gambling but there is an element of that kind of involved in in it and um, my parents had always invested in financial markets you know since I was a kid and I was always kind of surrounded by compound investing and and the ability to kind of really build serious wealth from investing in markets in general Um, so there was actually the, the, the catalyst for me um, getting into it was I um, read an article about a guy called Navinda Saror, and he was a, a trader in London that created um, an algorithm to manipulate the market. So, so I read this book called Flash Crash by Michael Vaughan, and it obviously kind of talked about this guy that you know, he was a little bit of a, um, a savant, who's super intelligent. He worked at like a proprietary trading firm, and then he got the with working there so we went home and he lived at home with his parents and in his bedroom he just created this algorithm that made so much money and then I was like okay well I don't want to do that but I I would love to kind of learn how to invest in markets and start to understand about macroeconomics and things like that so that's what I did I I I mean like most things in my life it's either it's it's all or nothing so I, I, I bought all these books and I went online and, and I really started to educate myself just about finance in general. So that's what I've been doing for the last two years. And um, it's, been, it's been a great experience because it, surprisingly, it, you know, it, it kind of feeds into hospitality as well. And I'm not trying to stereotype chefs in general, but there's this kind of, I guess, um, thing where people say chefs are super creative but they're not the best business operators, and which is kind of true because as a chef, you get taught to cook, you get taught to run a kitchen. You don't go to business school and understand how to, to cost a dish or how to manage labor costs. And it's almost one of those things where I think a lot of time and energy probably really does need to be focused on those things, whether it's in an apprenticeship or whether you have a mentor, because it's such an important part of uh, running a restaurant. Like at the end of the day, it's a business, you know, like people always talk about it as a restaurant. I think the the finance side of it really gets neglected a lot. So kind of doing this for the last two years really taught me how to analyze a, a balance sheet. And I think it's going to be, you know, put me in good position for when we do open this business to really make sure it, it runs adequately financially. What lowered you back to the industry? Um, that's a a really, really good question. Um, (laughs) so Morgan and I have been friends for a long time. Um, there was probably, how long ago, maybe about eight years ago when Morgan was working for Sean Brock at Husk. Um, I spent a couple months uh, doing a stage with those guys, both in um, South Carolina. And then we did a um, little trip to Nashville when Morgan obviously got the um, position to be chef de cuisine at, um, Nashville. And um, we always spoke about doing something together. Um, said, you know, it would be great to open a little bar, you know, kind of European style. And, and 
like Morgan was the guy that first kind of got me really passionate about wine in general. So we, we, we share a love of a lot of things. Um, some, some vices that obviously, you know, are good and some vices that are a little bit bad. And I just, we, we just have a really great relationship. So when I got out of the industry and we decided to move back to Sydney from Adelaide, he just, he, he's like a dog with a bone, that guy. He was just kept on, mate, are we going to do something? Let's do something. Let's find a site. Let's find a site. And I, I think because I'd been doing the, the finance thing and I was working from home, you know, my wife and I would go and eat out. And I just, I mean, I love it. I, I just love eating at restaurants. I love going to restaurants. I just love the whole experience, the atmosphere, the staff, the, the vibe of a restaurant. You know, I was going out and eating and I just, I missed it so much. I think, we're, again, you know, coming back to that thing what I said earlier about when you've done something for so long, even though it was a really hard decision for me to get out, I, I knew maybe in the back of my mind, I would always come back to it in some capacity, whether it was running, I, I thought maybe, hey, if I make some good money in this finance thing, that maybe I can be an investor because, you know, the opportunity to kind of go to a place that whether you're, you're owning it or operating it and just kind of you know, having some association with the industry, for me, it's just, it's part of my DNA. So, when, when, he, when he wouldn't leave me alone, I was like, fuck, I just, I, I need to find a place just so this guy gets off my back. So when I said, look, hey, you know, like uh, we've got a bit of money put aside, like let's, let's try to do something, but let's try to do something that is conducive for our lives because Morgan's got a kid now as well and uh, we just, I, I think that's the thing as well that COVID kind of put into perspective is that restaurants need to be sustainable from so many different points of view. Like whether you're talking about sustainability from a food perspective or whatever, they need to be sustainable from a life perspective too. And, and as I said before, everything I do is like, it, it's all or nothing, you know, like if I do something, I have to put 110% every single day. But when you have a family and, and you also want to have a good work-life balance, we need to create something where it can be like, hey, we don't have to spend 100 hours a week here as well. And the other thing too is, you know, what I've experienced over the last few months, whether we're talking from an inflationary point of view or not, is that, you know, restaurants are a little bit more expensive than they've kind of ever been. Cost of, cost of raw ingredients are going up, labor's going up. And I understand kind of, you know, like restaurants need to make money. And that's the thing too that we talked about is that like, you know, we, we want to have enough staff that no one's working more than 40 hours a week. And if that's the case, and I'm talking about both Morgan and I as owners of the business too, obviously you expect being an owner, you're going to have to put a little bit more time and energy in than the average worker does but we're just like we need to have enough staff we need to make money in this business and it needs to be sustainable for us so what are the things we need to do to get to that point i want to talk about what you're doing uh in the coming weeks when you do open bar copan but take us back to when you were young what, what sort of role did food play in your family um, well, so my background, my, my dad's uh, Hungarian, so we obviously have a kind of European um, upbringing in terms of uh, a food and culture perspective as well. So my mum's Australian, so I wouldn't say that, like, 
I, I, again, you know, like sometimes I hear these stories that are a little bit cliche that, you know, like we've got Nonna in the background and everyone's cooking, you know, it, it kind of wasn't like that. But, you know, we used to go to my grandma's house and she'd cook kind of goulash and cook some of those traditional Hungarian dishes like stuffed cabbages and stuff like that. But I was such a fussy eater as a kid. So for me, I like it's great that I kind of grew up in this environment where there was interesting food to eat, but I would not eat anything as a child. And actually my two kids now are exactly the same as me. Like it was chicken and potatoes and that's it. <laughs> so it was really funny for me to kind of come into the industry when I wasn't really that kind of passionate about food to begin with. And I, and again, you know, like some people have that experience, but then some people sometimes fall into a career where it might not be the right thing for them in the beginning. But as an individual that, you know, always had parents that had a great worth ethic and kind of taught me, you know, the principles of life. If you want to be successful, you have to work hard. So when I got into cooking, I wouldn't eat shit. I mean, I, I, so I started with Neil Perry at Watpool, which was in um, Darwin Harbour, and all the chefs would be like, try this. I'm like, I fucking don't eat that. I don't eat oysters. I don't, I don't eat raw fish. But I'm grateful now that I had that experience because now I eat everything, and I'm not quite sure had I have um, come into the industry, would I be as adventurous in food as I am today? What lured you to begin a career in food? Um, I had some friends at the time, actually, um, really, really close friend of mine I grew up with. He's now the, the sous chef at Noma. His name's Merrick Anderson. And I dated his sister, um, for quite a while. And the whole family, um, their mum was in hospitality. She was a chef. Um, Jessica, the girl I dated was a waitress at the time. So I guess because like I was so close with them and they were so involved in the industry that um, w when I got to, I think I was uh, 16 when I first got into the industry, um, I was at a stage where like most adolescents do, wasn't really focused on school, was more focused on going out and hanging out with my friends on the weekend. And my mum said to me, like, look, do you want to go to university and have a tertiary education? And look, to be honest, no fucking way. That's the last thing I want to do. So I'm really grateful to my, my parents for obviously saying, like, look, if that's not what you want to do, pick a career now, go and do an apprenticeship, and then just focus on that. So I made the decision to leave school. And my mum said, you know, what career path do you want to um, take? And then because I was obviously so close with these guys and they were all in hospitality, I said, oh, you know what? Chefing sounds good. Like, I think I'll give that a go. And at the time, my mum said, that's fine if you want to be a chef. Here is a list of the best restaurants that you should go to. I don't want you to go and work at the local cafe where you're not going to get, like, the proper training and experience. So she listed um, Neil Perry, um, Tetsuya, um, who else at the time? I think it was also Peter Doyle. And she said, these are the top three restaurants. Send your resume to all three of them and, you know, see what happens from there. And I was just grateful that I got a call back from um, Neil at the time. Obviously not, not directly from Neil, but one of Neil's executive chefs. And, um, yeah, they said come down and, you know, uh, do a trial and the rest is history. Do you have any stories of those first couple of years when you started applying your trade and, and what it was like for you? 
oh yeah i was like so out of my depth <laughs> and you know obviously working for you know like a guy like neil obviously very high standards as well and there was some times i was like have i really made the right decision um but I, you know like it at, at being young and passionate, I, I guess, as an individual, like I went, I, I took the bull by the horns and really went with it. But yeah, I mean, so when when I started at Wokpool was the year um, uh, Sydney hosted the Olympics. And that was just such an incredible experience because Darwin Harbour, where Wokpool was at the time, was actually an Olympic site. So it, it was just such a great experience to kind of have an event like the, the Olympics here in Sydney and to be catering to all these international people. And actually the kitchen was operating 24 hours. And like We weren't open, but we had a 24-hour operation because we were just so busy. Like we were doing, I think, like about – anywhere from say 800 to a thousand covers a day yeah it was just such a great experience and um you know i'm really grateful at the time i was working with matt Lindsay, he was an apprentice there as well so um you know i worked with some great people like a guy um simon zalua who's at jimmy's falafel as well so the friendships i, I built at that time and um just the experience of being so uh, moldable at that age and being surrounded by great chefs working with great produce um, I, I, if I could ever give someone advice that wanted to get into the industry I would say you need to start at a very early age working for the best people where you get to experience great technique and great produce and, and it's a stepping stone for the rest of your career Take us back to those days. Who were the really important mentors that you worked with that gave you those steps? Um, so I think one of the biggest influences, so I, I worked for Neil for just under five years. So I did my whole apprenticeship like with the Rockpool group. So um, so I started um, I started there at the start. It literally was, I think, January of year 2000, I started at Rockpool. And um, because Neil had done so well during um, the Olympics, I think he kind of made the decision maybe to shut up shop there and just focus on Rockpool as pretty much the, um, the only business. Uh, business that he had because he'd kind of expanded I think a little bit before that he had a lot of these like noodle bars and quite a few kind of Asian businesses and I think he'd consolidated everything so he obviously shut down Rockpool and they kind of handpicked a few of the guys to kind of go over to work at Rockpool so I think it was at the end of 2000 I got um, asked if I'd like to go and work at Rockpool and I thought amazing what a, what a great experience and Matt Lindsay went over there as well Simon so obviously I was really close with those guys so it was just like a, a, an easy decision for me to make to kind of go over there and obviously Rockpool was three hats at that time so I was like you know I think Rockpool I can't remember it was either maybe one or two hats but I thought what a great experience and an opportunity to go and work at a three hat restaurant. So I jumped over there. So in terms of the influences there, um, Khan Danis was the was the executive chef, and um, you, you know working under that guy. Like, don't, don't get me wrong, he, he's an, he's a tough guy to work for, but he's so fair, and he was just you know whether it was cooking or whether it was like how to run a brigade or how to maintain standards at a three hat restaurant, like. You know, like the industry was very, very different, you know, 25 years ago or just under 25 years ago when we went there. Like a lot of hours, it was really tough, but I would not change that experience for anything. And I'm, I'm not trying to 
talk down, I guess, the way things are today. But when you go through like hard experiences like that, that also builds so much resilience. And, you know, like again, like long hours, like tough boss to work for, like all the chefs are kind of, you know, on your back every day. But, you, you know, that kind of built me as the person I am today. So, it, it, like, it's, it's maybe a little bit hindsight, whereas obviously at the time I'm like, you know, this is fucked. We're doing all these hours. You're getting yelled at every day. You know, like, it's a, it's a tough environment. But, you, you know, when I have challenges that, that, that come my way now, I'm like, because of those hard experiences, I know I can tackle anything that comes my way now. You've worked um, sort of all over the globe in London and, and Sydney. And tell us a bit about sort of the impact that, you know, some of the best venues that you've worked in have had on you. Um, yeah, again, you take a little bit from every place that you work and some places you learn a lot from from whether it's cooking or, or technique or whatnot or some places you go and, and the best part about it is, is, is how they manage a kitchen as well. And, um, you know, I've, I've, with over two decades of experience traveling all around the world, like some of the best things that I learned weren't necessarily cooking. So I spent obviously time with Heston on the opening team at dinner. And I think I wanted to go and work for him because, you know, I wanted to learn kind of, you know, modernist style cooking. And obviously Heston has been this guy that does incredible, crazy things from a technique point of view. But surprisingly, the, the, the main thing I took away from him was how well the kitchens are, are structured and organized. And he, he said something which has stuck with me so much. You know, I've learned and, and heard from so many different chefs in, in my career. But one of the things that he said that will always be ingrained in my mind is he talked about um, staff. And he obviously has a reputation of being someone like back in the day that was really tough on the staff. And he used to talk about mental health and how he used to get really angry at the staff. And obviously now he's like so calm with everyone. And he said, I came to a realization in my career where getting angry at people was actually pointless and getting angry at them was my fault. And it was my fault because A, I haven't trained them properly or B, I had just hired the wrong person. So, you know, for him to, to say that, and it's like, it's so true, you know, like if you're getting angry at someone in the kitchen, like it's not their fault. Like if they're making mistakes, it's your fault because you haven't done the right thing by them, whether it's like you said, training or actually when you go through the recruitment process of like picking the right person that's going to be right for your venue or right for the position that, you know, the, that you need them to be. So, you know, that was a bit of a, um, like a light bulb moment for me. So some of like coming back to your question, you know, some of these things that I've learned in, you know, in, in my career, not necessarily about cooking. Like I think, cook, I think a lot of people can like naturally cook, whether it's from their experiences of cooking at home or upbringing, but you know, to be a really good chef and a really good restaurateur, like there's so many attributes that is very hard to learn and you can go and work in all these great restaurants. And that's why sometimes 
I don't laugh when people go, I want to work at a three Michelin star restaurant. And that's great. I, I think everyone should do that. Everyone should work at a three hat restaurant. But, you know, there's people that continually kind of go to these restaurants. I feel like sometimes, are you really learning the skills that you need to be a great chef for yourself in the future? When did you first sort of um, get confidence in yourself as a chef and discover your own sort of style on the plate? Oh, man, I think I'm still learning. <laughs> that, that's a really good question because I think about that a lot, kind of coming back to the to the comment I just made about kind of, you know, you, you go and work for someone else. That's the thing, right? Like you take a little bit from everywhere you go and you have to find your own path in terms of what you feel like you want to cook, right? Because I think that's a hard decision. Sometimes people, you know, they, they, they have an Italian background, so it's natural for them to kind of cook Italian. Like I'm half Australian, half Hungarian. There was nothing really that resonated with me to say, I'm going to cook this food. And I worked for Neil Perry. He kind of has like an Asian influence, modern Australian influence. I've worked at Morrow, which was like a Moorish restaurant. You know, I'd worked a very like eclectic experience of like restaurants. But um, I, I think, so I guess I've changed a little bit from kind of the, the, the last few restaurants that I've operated as executive chef. So I think my first kind of big gig was working at Nomad, which is, I guess, kind of uh, a little bit of the the Moorish kind of style food. I guess you could say it's Mediterranean, but at the time, you know, there was a really big influence um, from from Middle Eastern food on my personal cooking. So I was really inspired by my time at Moro. I was really inspired by what Ottolenghi was doing. And obviously the owners, um, Al and Rebecca, were really kind of keen to kind of cook that, that, that food too. And Al's obviously Lebanese, so there was a bit of a kind of real spin on the kind of modern style Middle Eastern food. And then I guess over time, I've kind of spent a lot of, you know, the last few trips have always been to Europe. You know, I really like European food. So I guess stylistically, I've really kind of changed the last few years just on, I guess, what I've been surrounded by or what kind of cool things are happening at the time in food. So yeah, my style has really changed over the last few years. And Obviously, opening Bar Copan, it, even though it's a it's a French name and it's obviously named for friends, um, I wouldn't say that the food is particularly going to be French. But you know, I really like just European food in general. And I think it's good to kind of keep the food a little bit ambiguous too. Um, so yeah, I think the new venue is going to be around kind of Italian, French, Spanish, but it might be just a little bit of everything. So I just love the fact that when you open a restaurant, um, that you know, yes, you can pick a particular type of cuisine, but I really like to keep things kind of open and take a little bit of experience from 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 all my experience and just kind of put that in the food. There might be some Asian ingredients there and just kind of, you know, do like a little bit of a European modern spin on it. You're back in Sydney these days, but what, what triggered the the move to Adelaide and, and Lee Street Wine Room? Um, so Sally, my wife, is um, originally um, from Adelaide. She and I met here in Sydney and, you know, she hasn't lived in Adelaide for, you know, the last kind of 15, 20 years. And... Um, 
when we used to go down there to like visit her, because her folks still live down there, so we'd go down and visit family and friends. And um, mate, it's just such a cool city. It, I mean, it's a, essentially, it's a big country town. I've been mean, saying it's a city is kind of sounds a little bit strange by saying that, but um, it, like there were so many boxes ticked for me about um, making a move to Adelaide. Um, you know, cost of living is is like is so affordable there. I mean, we bought a house in in Adelaide for the same price you pay for a fucking car space here in Sydney. So <laughs> you know, like that that was a that was the thing that kind of you know decided that that was one of the things that we decided to kind of move there so you know affordability was great um produce in south australia is amazing the proximity to agriculture is incredible so you know i don't think a lot of people realize that you can literally drive to the adelaide hills like 20, 20 15 20 minutes from the city so to be able to have like a place where you've got incredible winemakers, incredible food producers. Like there was just so many things that I'll be like coming, coming to Adelaide is a no brainer. And we always, there's some great restaurants in Adelaide, but we felt like there, there's a lot of great um, high-end restaurants. You know, you've got places like McGill, um, a lot of cool restaurants there that I think cater to that kind of, um, you know, more refined experience. And we said, oh, you know, like if we did something a little bit more casual here, really focused on trying to source as much produce locally as possible and really showcase that and showcase, I guess, um, you know, some of these cool natural winemakers from the Adelaide Hills. And we just thought that this would be a pretty co- kind of cool concept and we don't think anyone else was doing that. Because it's quite funny as well, kind of coming back to the winemakers as well. Like outside of the Loire Valley, like the Adelaide Hills is one of the biggest regions for natural wine in the world. And it's a very conservative state. You know, you've got Henschke, you've got Penfolds, you've got Rockford, you've got some of these well, well-known labels here in Australia and globally as well. But they don't really pioneer some of these kind of cool alternate people that are doing um, interesting things in wine. And it was really surprising kind of talking to people like, um, Anton from Lucy Margot, you know, Tim and Mon from Manon, you know, people or they're making really, really cool stuff. And they were saying, you're one of the only people here in Adelaide that wants to actually sell our wine. And I was like, how is that possible? How can you literally be 20 minutes up the road and no one wants to embrace and promote that? And they're like, it's just, just the way things are here which I thought was really kind of a little bit, a little bit disappointing, to be honest. Was it, uh, was Leach Street Wine Room, was it, was it a tough restaurant to run? I mean, COVID sort of um, was a large part of the time frame that it was open as well. Was it, were there challenges there? Oh, for sure. So we opened in September 19. So literally, um, you know, less than six months before um, COVID happened. And, um, South Australia and Adelaide particularly really relies on a lot of interstate tourism. A lot of people come down and they do the whole wine 
wine region thing. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of challenges. And, and from a financial perspective as well, we, like my wife and I, we didn't, it was the first business we've been involved in where we didn't have any outside backing. It was just my wife and I. We'd invested pretty much all the money we had. We borrowed some money from family and friends. We, like, maxed out our credit cards. So, this was like... Like, it, it, if this doesn't work out, then we're kind of going back to square one. And obviously, we, we still had two kids at the time. So, it was a big risk for us to kind of do do this. But it, 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 we kind of felt like, oh, this is a, we got a great location. It's a great city. Like, we were confident that the business was going to do well. So, at the time, we'd kind of, because we borrowed a little bit of money, we um, were trying to pay back the debt as quickly as possible and the business was doing quite well. So, we didn't bank any money. We're like, let's just pay off the debt as quickly as possible so that we can be in a better position financially. And because of that, because of the debt that we had at the time, we weren't able to redraw on the money that we paid. So, when COVID came, we were like, what are we going to do? Like, we are really in a, in a, in a, like a position where all this money that we invested into the business six months later was going to be gone. And we spent a lot of money. We got awesome designers that we worked with, this awesome crew um, in um, Adelaide called uh, Studio Graham. Dave and Graham did an incredible design. Um, Sally had picked like amazing finishes for the, for the venue. And we were happy to spend the money because we were like, you know, this is the business that we're going to stay in for the next, you know, we got a 15-year lease. We're going to be here for a long time. So, we were happy to kind of spend the money um, to get the place looking beautiful because we knew that we would get the money back in time. So, when COVID happened, it's just like, and for, for everyone, I think that everything was so uncertain that no one knew what was going on and we felt like we had a responsibility um to to all the staff as well and we really like we made sure everyone was paid like there was no thing where you know like they were like our family we had a really great crew there so you know we had enough money to probably see us through for three months if um you know, we had no idea what was going to happen. So, we knew that we could kind of still support the staff. We had a great landlord at the time that just said, look, don't worry about um, paying rent. You know, it's fortunate for him that he owns the whole street. So, he's probably not in a position where he needs to, you know, squeeze a dollar out of every single. And he just said, look, you know, you guys are great tenants. I want to support all my guys to make sure that you can kind of get through it. But, yeah, I mean, it was just... It's funny now kind of looking back on it, you know, because I think now people talk about COVID. It's just like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. Like I, I know that there's a little bit of an influx of kind of people here in Australia kind of get in again and everyone is just so like, oh, whatever, you know. But at the time, it was just everyone was kind of freaking out so much about which, which is which is, the, I guess, the right thing to do, you know. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But um, it, it's funny now looking at it when people go, oh, I've got COVID, you're just like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, and, yeah, I, I think maybe uh, – I'm, I'm not saying the way that the government handled it was, was right or wrong. It's not really – you know, I have an opinion, but 
I, I, you know, like I think they did the best they could with the resources that they had at the time and, and, and the, trying to deal with the situation on a day-to-day basis. But, um, you know, I think the government probably could have done a little bit more to support small businesses and hospitality in, in general, um, you know, similar to the arts, like we just got decimated, you know, like it put us back so much financially. And again, you know, we were quite lucky in, in being in Adelaide is that we didn't have a lot of extended lockdowns like both Melbourne and Sydney did. So we were quite fortunate that we were able to trade quite a lot during COVID. It was on limited capacity and, again, coming back to the fact that Adelaide is such a, um, a city for interstate tourism, you know, the business, you know, like what we were doing in revenue prior to, to COVID to even when things kind of got back to kind of a little bit of normality, we were like struggling to even kind of do half of what we did before just because, you know, people were being conscious with money. There wasn't enough people coming from interstate. There's no, um, you know, international kind of tourism. So, yeah, it was, it was just so hard. And, and again, you know, this I guess why we're talking about this now is that because of all these things that happen, I'm just like, man, hospitality is just such a hard gig. You know, like no one ever gets into this industry to be like, I'm going to open a restaurant because I'm going to be driving a Ferrari tomorrow and be making shitloads of money. And that's why sometimes I get upset when I see these like, articles in the paper talking about, oh, you know, restaurants and restaurateurs, all they do is they rip off them, their staff, you know, they don't pay them properly. And I'm like, man, restaurants make no money. Like, you'll think we're ripping people off so that we can, like, feel, um, fund this crazy lifestyle that we have. Like, you know, like, I fucking drive a scooter to and from work every day. You know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in hospitality because I love what I do, not because it's going to make me a million dollars. So, Well, Morgan McGlone is a, is a great chef in his own right, and yeah, he's your um, business partner. Um, so tell us, whose food is it? How are you working on the menu? Is it a collaboration? Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, you know, Morgie's a great chef and, um, you know, like he, he's had some incredible experiences. worked for like Pierre Gagné. He worked at, at Dom with Alex Atala, obviously working with Sean Brock, you know, and learned so much from there. So, um, yeah, we're, we're both going to be involved in the food. But I think Morgan has a, has a particular skill and I think we really need to kind of exploit his skill. And that's like he's a people person like he's so he's such a lovable character so i've really been pushing him so i told him to get his rsa and i want him on the floor actually because i want him to be, i want him to be like that old school maitre d where you where you come into a venue and they're like ciao you know they know your name they know your kid's name like morgan i think can really be that type of person so as much as he's going to be involved in the food like i told him i was like man just get out on the floor even if you just sit at the bar and just drink and just like have conversations with people like i i think that would be really cool to kind of see him out there well, it's uh, opening in a few weeks and you've uh, made the plunge back into hospitality. Um, wh- what do you love about what you do? Oh, man, where do I begin? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so many things about it. And, and I think, again, you're like, I, I don't do this job 
for, for, for money or fame or glory. Like I do this job because when people come in and they leave our venue and, and the guests come up to me and say, you know what, that's one of the, the best meals or one of the best experiences I had. Like, that's why I love this job. Like, it's called hospitality for a reason. Giving good food, um, giving good service at an affordable price. Like, f- for me, that's why I do this, you know. Like, it, it, it's such a gratifying job to be in to kind of see that expression on someone's face when they eat a dish that you've created and they're like, fuck, that tastes amazing, you know? So I I think that's the one thing that's drawn me back to the industry so much. And I actually just love working, you know, like we've always been supported by incredible staff, you know, like I love training people. I love, you know, taking a relatively inexperienced person and building them up and watching them grow in your venue or even kind of grow and own their own venues one day. So, you know, I've always loved teaching people. So there's just, there's so many attributes of, of this this industry that I'm, I'm so grateful that I get to whether it's offering to the guests or offering to the staff it's just it's just so good and that's why I'm, I'm back here now well Nathan good luck with the new project it's an honor to have you on deep in the weeds today just hear a little bit of your story it's good to have you back in the industry um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll chat again soon definitely thank you so much for having me this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.